Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at LionelRacing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. Hey, Ben, it's Aaron. Hey, Aaron, it's Ben. So, Ben, how long have you been following NASCAR? A lifetime. How fitting, then, that we're the hosts of the A Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. A Lifetime in NASCAR highlights NASCAR's illustrious history with analysis and anecdotes from a couple of NASCAR historians, namely myself, Aaron Burns, and my buddy Ben White, who's covered the sport since Ken Schrader was an open-wheel racer. We're going to discuss contemporary NASCAR topics and everything we've seen and heard through the years. You'll learn about where the sport has been, where it will go, and the inside scoop on some of the craziest stories you'll ever hear. Been kicking things off. Uh, wanted to provide an update to our audience. I, I polled four people about uh, yeah. about so last week, if you recall. Um, this is off topic, but it's it's still on topic. So Ben was talking about how he likes mayonnaise hot dogs, um, or to put mayonnaise on a hot dog, and I had never heard of that. So I polled four people, among them Greg Walter, who is the executive VP and general manager at Charlotte Motor Speedway, and wanted to know their, their feedback and what they thought, and three of the four people had never heard of it. Um, not necessarily were saying anything, you know, in a negative tone, Ben. They just never heard of it. And then one guy said, I love it. I think it's great. So you've got a little bit of support here. Um, I'm sure there's some other people that probably like it too. But uh, yeah, I was I was a bit surprised, man, that, that you had somebody in your corner. And then the rest of us, it wasn't that we were necessarily against it. I mean, I kind of am, but um, <laughs> I'll, I'll try it. So, you know, I thought it yeah. was kind of neat that you, that you had somebody in your corner, man. So, yeah, hey, yeah. hats off to you. Well, thank you. And you can tell him that a case of mayonnaise a six pack of mayonnaise is coming his way as a as a gift does mayonnaise come in a six pack i don't know i'm not sure <laughs> i feel like you would know eight or something i don't know in a box let's say let's say in a box a, ca- a case then, of mayonnaise of course, if such a yeah, thing exists sure yeah uh, all righty you can get it all sizes <laughs> all righty i hear that so there um, you go all right so some people like mayonnaise on their hot dogs one mm-hmm. guy ben I don't know if he, what kind of hot dogs he liked. You might know him. Uh, he is the driver of the week for the Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. Uh, he was a pipe fitter in Alabama. Uh, mm-hmm. Normal guy, worked a normal job, just had a great passion for motorsports, and he was pretty darn talented when it came to sitting behind the wheel of race cars as well. Had, had some considerable success throughout his career. Unfortunately, we lost him in February of 1994 in an untimely accident at Daytona. Our driver of the week this week is the great Neil Bonnet. Uh, ben, Neil was uh, was around really kind of in his prime when you started covering the sport. 
Uh, what do you remember about Neil Bonnet and, uh, and and some special things about him? He was he was a stand up guy, wasn't he? Oh man, I'm telling you, he was he was a really neat, genuine guy. And and I guess the first thing I remember about Neil was that he didn't meet a stranger. And even uh, I mean, he, even if he didn't know you, he talked to you like he had known you all your life. And that was what was so comforting about Neil. I can tell you a quick funny story. Rockingham, uh, North Carolina Motor Speedway. This was February in 1986, and he had been racing, of course, for several years before that. And yeah. we would do an, an interview or two here and there, but I really didn't know Neil all that well, to be honest. And so I'm walking through the garage area, and uh, did your pants fit? Did what? Did your pants yeah, fit my on pants this day? Fit that week? Okay, yeah, I was good, good on the pants. I, I just had, had a nice belt and everything. Yeah, that's good stuff. <laughs> all right, sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. Oh, that's okay. So uh, I'm walking through the garage area, and he is. This is 1986, so he's propped up on the back window with his feet propped up on the back spoiler, which you could do that in those days, of the number 12 uh, Budweiser Junior Johnson Chevrolet. And he was just sitting in his driver's seat, and I'm walking by. Okay, now keep in mind, I I really don't know Neil, okay, at all. And I walk by, I said, hey. Hey, come here a minute. And I, I, you know, you did the old start, look to the right, look to the left thing. I was like, talking about me? And I was kind of, I was like, this is cool. Neil Bonnet's calling me over here to talk to me. Okay. (laughs) So I went over there to talk to him. He said, let me ask you a question. Now keep in mind, I'd never met him really. I mean, I never really knew him at all. Mm -hmm. And he said, let me ask you a question. Do you understand women? It's like, uh, no, I guess not. I mean, so it was such an out and left field question. I didn't really know how to answer. I said, no, I guess I don't. He said, well, let me just tell you what's going on. I mean, you know, my wife and I just, we just had this really bad argument about something. It's like, why are you telling me this first off? And secondly, what ranks me as somebody? And I guess he just felt comfortable talking. And I think we probably talked about 30 minutes and he never, he never moved. He just sat on the back of that, you know, number 12 Chevrolet. And we were just talking about life in general before it was over and some fishing and this and that. But it's like, and I walked away thinking, you know, that is such a cool guy. And I was so honored that he asked me to just come over and talk to him. And that was what you got with Neil all the time. He was never, you know, one of these types that, hey, look how great I am. I just want to race, whatever. But, oh, my gosh, just a, just a neat guy. And then when he moved to the uh, to the television booth yeah. with Kent Squire and Mike Joy and those guys, man, you talk about somebody that was just such a natural about getting across what was going on in the racetrack and he you know he didn't do the old fluffy voice any of that kind of stuff i'm an announcer or not no it wasn't that at all he was just conveying to either the one person listening that day or the millions of people listening that day and oh my gosh just a just an incredibly neat guy and i remember the day sadly he passed away in daytona we're sitting in the media center, which was then the old Benny Kahn media center. It's, it's changed two or three times since that time. But he came in and he was wearing his, uh, his uh, blazer from when he was going to do the TV broadcast and had on the nice shirt and tie. Hey, boys, how's it going this morning? I'm going to do a show, uh, a little bit of a shoot here for the TV stuff, and then I'm going to go get my uniform, and I'm going to go out, and, and we're going to see if we can qualify for this race. And I can't – oh, man, I can't wait to get in the car. It's going to be great. Yeah. He, did, he didn't come back. And, it, yeah. man, you talk about – a deep dark cloud or that media center not just because he was a competitor in nascar the fact that we had lost such a close 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 friend and man i'm telling you it was just such a shock when we heard that he had crashed 
and uh, and sadly he didn't come out of it. But uh, great competitor, won a lot of races, great great racer, and a great person. Yeah, and Neil Bonnet, Ben, to to piggyback on your point, speaking of, of Neil Bonnet, racing legend, one of the coolest things that I never forgot about Neil, and if you watch any old race on YouTube, you'll see this, he was more of a natural, like you said, uh, in front of a camera than any active race car driver I've probably ever seen or heard of. I mean, the thing that always got me was when Brock Yates or Mike Joy or Dave Despain or Ken Squire or whoever was interviewing Neil Bonnet, he wouldn't look at them. He would look at the camera. And they don't really want you to do that, per se, uh, unless you're the person doing the interview. But it spoke to the fact that he was so polished and think about this. This guy's an average dude from Alabama um, w- without any semblance of the background you would expect in somebody who was such a professional in front of the camera. And so uh, to give you guys a little bit of background, so Neil Bonnet won quite a bit of races in his cup career. Um, the One of the most impressive accomplishments, he actually won the Coca-Cola 600 back-to-back years in 1982 and 83 for different teams. I don't know how often that's happened. It may be the only time it's ever happened. Uh, we'll have to, again, consult our crack research team of myself and Ben to, to check. But uh, Neil won the 682 with the Wood Brothers, and then he won in 83 in the 75 Ramark car, which was owned by Bob Rahilly and Butch Mock. Um, but he, he won quite a bit of races. He won the July race at Daytona. He won a couple at Atlanta, uh, one at Talladega, one all over the place. Just a, a supremely talented driver. He actually, his last two wins, Ben, were back-to-back in 88, and he was still competitive early in 1990. Um, there was a big crash at Darlington in the spring race in, in 1990, the Trans-South 500 at the time, and Neil, I think he was either T-boned or he, he T-boned somebody else, suffered massive head trauma, and actually ha- had a pretty serious bout with amnesia, which is frightening mm-hmm. to even think about. Um, and, 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 you know, he had to go through this, um, and I, I've heard the story and Ben, you, you've not only heard it from Bobby, but, you know, Bobby was going through a period of time where Bobby was, had also had brain trauma and he, Bobby Allison, that is, and he, uh, he's trying to learn how to speak. And I think it was Neil's wife one time, Bobby and Neil were sitting in the living room talking and she said between Bobby trying to figure out what to say and Neil trying to remember what he just told him. It was a heck of a conversation. Yes, that Um, did happen. Yeah. (laughs) So, and and I almost feel bad for laughing, but they laughed when they told the story. Sure. Um, And and so Neil was out of the race car in 1990, uh, just two years after he'd won back-to-back races and, um, you know, a good ride. And a lot of people, I think, thought that was the end of his career, that Neil's going to go into television. And he did. He did a fantastic job. It seemed like everything was almost as it as it needed to be uh, for 91. Dale Jarrett, unproven son of a Cup Series legend, Ned Jarrett, uh, had had some success in the then Bush Series, had not had any in the Cup Series other than um, he had a top five run at Martinsville in 89, driving for Kelly Yarborough, but didn't have a sterling resume he'd have by the end of the 90s. So in 1990, the Wood Brothers, they drafted Dale Jarrett to replace Neil Bonnet, and a year and a half later, DJ nabbed his first of many Cup Series wins, in a photo finish with Davy Allison. But, you know, to go back to Neil, um, everybody thought that was in Neil's career as a driver. And then he decides in 1993, I want to come back. And we have touched on this in a prior episode, how much I love comeback stories. And Neil's 
was it was a feel-good comeback story. He comes back, his best friend in NASCAR, that'd be his best friend in the world, is the late, great Dale Earnhardt. And mm-hmm. Neil comes back, and he's driving a couple races in 93 for Richard Childress in what amounts to, Ben, if, correct me if I'm wrong here, but what amounted to an Earnhardt backup car uh, sponsored by GM Goodwrench and Mom and Pops. And uh, he had he had a wild ride at Talladega in the first one in 93, um, but was okay another race or two, and then looked up, um, hooked up with James Finch in this gorgeous neon yellow and pink 51 car for the 94 season, and um, unfortunately, we lost him before the season even got underway. It was his first couple laps of practice, and there's there's always been a discussion, Ben, was it a flat tire that caused this crash? Was it uh, his car was, you know, the spoiler was too low? Was it, you know, the wind kind of impacted it? We may never know, but one thing Correct. we do know is that ben, ben Neil Bonnet was a fantastic guy, like you said, and you know, I never got the pleasure of meeting him. But as a race fan, as a kid growing up, then you just had the utmost respect for Neil Bonnet because he was a consummate professional. But like we said earlier, you know, he was a really, really good race car driver and mm-hmm. one of many people who have uh, won races. And really showed out driving the number 12 car. He did it with Junior Johnson um, in that Budweiser car, like you mentioned, Ben. But, you know, there's been other guys who drove that 12 car. This being episode 12, let's talk about some of the other guys who have had success uh, using that number on their door. Sure. Well, you know, you have to go back to actually, believe this or not, 106 drivers have used the number 12 uh, from 1948 to present. And uh, topping that list, no big surprise, Bobby Allison has 25 victories uh, with the, the number. And then Ryan Newman, when uh, driving for Team Penske, uh, collected 13 victories. And then you go back to, say, Jeremy Mayfeld with three, Ryan Blaney with three, Bonnet with three, with number 12. Yep. Ralph Moody, uh, an early driver who went on to form uh, – Holman Moody, which was the, and you got to remember, this is back when in the mid 60s, early 60s, and it was basically a powerhouse factory for building race cars. If you had the money at Holman Moody, you could go in there and say, I want a turnkey Ford Fairlane or Ford Galaxy, whatever they were running that year, and see in two weeks, whatever, here's the check. And you go in one door there. And then when you came back, your car would be sitting there just like on the showroom floor, ready for you to load it on the trailer. Like a constructor in F1 almost. Right. Very much so. And and in those days, that was not the case. And a lot of, you know, there were a lot of not that many top teams. You had Petty Enterprises, Holman Moody, and maybe you could say Junior Johnson and the Wood Brothers. That was about it. So, but Ralph Moody uh, was a great race car driver before he started Holman Moody with John Holman. And the first time the number 12 won a race in the Cup Series was June 10th, 1956. And it came at Lehigh, Arkansas. And he was driving a Ford. No surprise there because it was a Ford uh, backed uh, effort. And that's basically all that uh, Ralph Moody ran was Ford's. But talking about the number 12, though, it's just a, a, a really cool number that Bobby has runs for ran for most of his career and, like I say, had uh, 25 victories in the car. For Junior Johnson, he ran his own cars using number 12 in Dodges and Chevrolets. 
uh, ran number 22 some, yep. number 15 some, but number 12 by far is the number that is associated with Bobby. And the thing uh, very early in the game that we need to mention also is that when Bobby was racing in Miami, he ran the number 312 on the modified circuit because his birthday was December 12th. Hmm. So uh, he just loved the number 312. And of course, they did run three-digit numbers uh, in NASCAR in the 50s, but then, you know, by the end of the 50s, they cut that out and went back to just doing a two-car or two-number uh, number, I guess is the way to say two that. Two-digit number. Two-digit number, thank <laughs> there you. There you go. Yeah, I'm old. And so, <laughs> uh, <laughs> need a little help there. So, I mean, it's just, it's a it's an awesome number that's gone to victory lane. And by the way, Davey Allison actually drove that 12-car uh, for Junior Johnson once at Talladega and very early before he got in the uh, 28 uh, Harry Rainier Robert Yates effort. So, yeah, just a very popular number in NASCAR. That was Davey's first start. It was in 1985 at Dega. He started seventh yep. and he finished seventh, subbing for Neil. Um, yeah, and, you know, now that you think about it, there's a lot of guys in the Alabama gang or extended members of the Alabama gang to drive the 12 uh, between Bobby and Davey, Neil, the man who replaced Bobby in the 12 car, Mike Alexander, was he from Alabama too? I think he was, wasn't he? I think so. I'd have yeah. to research that. I think so. Mm-hmm. I have to look that up. But yeah, so I mean, a lot of these guys. Now, remember, uh, Ben, you brought up a fantastic point that a lot of people probably don't know. I didn't know this for a long time. Was yes, Bobby Allison and Donnie Allison are the, you could call them the, you know, the, the fathers of the Alabama gang. But remember, they're not actually from Alabama, they're from Florida. Uh, so Bobby got his start racing in Miami because they were from the Miami area originally, mm-hmm. and then they they moved to uh, to Alabama. Kind of crazy how like some of the most famous uh, Alabama personalities and people who were uh, associated with Alabama aren't actually from there. Another one I'll give you a great example. Listen to him on the way to work. It was uh, um, very recently on the way to work. Listen to John Boy and Billy, which is ninety nine point seven in the Charlotte market. Uh, they played Sweet Home Alabama by Leonard Skinner. Um, and when people, I think a lot of people who may not be big fans of Leonard Skinner, they think of them, they think of their music, they think of Sweet Home Alabama, they think, oh, these guys must be from Alabama. They're actually from Jacksonville, Florida. Um, mm. So something about Florida guys uh, becoming more synonymous <laughs> with Alabama, I guess. Yeah. Um, I mean, not like they're that far away from one another anyway uh, on mm. the map, but kind of an interesting little tidbit, I thought. Um Back to the 12 car. Sorry, I, I got us way off topic there. But back to the 12 car, Ben. You know, when I think of that now, honestly, I think of Ryan Newman winning all those polls um, when he had Todd Borland as his crew chief driving that Alltel Dodge. Um, that the, the body on the, the Winston Cup cars in like 2003, I loved that. I thought that was the coolest one, the way the cars looked. I understand somebody recently made a comparison that actually looked like somebody's left foot because they were wider in the back, the front, the right side, and the left side were not symmetrical in the nose whatsoever, and I don't care. I thought they looked incredibly awesome. Mm -hmm. I assume Ryan Newman probably feels the same way Um, because when you think about what Ryan Newman has accomplished in the Cup Series, I think you know a lot of newer NASCAR fans may not understand – how historic a run he went on in the early 2000s, driving that 12 for Roger Penske and qualifying on the pole all the freaking time. In 2003, mm-hmm. this is his second full cup season. You know what? Let's back up. Ryan Newman's first four seasons in cup 
period. First four full seasons in Cup, 2002-2005. He won six poles, 11 poles, nine poles, and eight poles. Wow. I mean, that's, now, that's pretty impressive. Right. Now, I'm not very good at math. But that feels like it's like 50. I don't think it is, but it, it's it, it's not. But he has actually won 51 poles in his Cup Series career, which is made even more incredible by the fact he hasn't won one since 2013. So had mm-hmm. he been on that, you know, had he continued that that string, you know, easily could have won more than 100, qualify on the pole more than 100 times. It is remarkable that this guy and his crew chief, Matt Borland, who later worked with Haas F1's team, uh, that they had this amount of success. I mean, it's unreal. You, you took that car to Atlanta, to Charlotte, uh, you know, to Loudon, New Hampshire. Um, he was going to win the pole. You just weren't beating him. And no, a lot of times true. they were they were just as fast in the race. And I think a lot of kids who grew up in the 90s and 2000s watching NASCAR, they think of that 12 that black and white with the blue stripe 12 car that, uh, man, I mean, it felt like every time you turn on the TV on Sunday, his name was the first one going across on the starting grid. It was just an incredible run, wasn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Ryan is one of those types that until you get him warmed up good, he's not going to say a, a lot. And so, obviously, the question after he gets the poll and a reporter goes to him, and, of course, the question is going to be, what was the key to your pole position? Well, obviously, he's not going to tell you because it's you know they they worked really hard to for that success, and they want to share it. Yeah. But but Ryan would usually say, "Well, I put my foot on the floor and let her eat." That's what he, <laughs> that's what he would always say. But hey, Aaron, I got a funny Bobby Allison story. I've got to got to share with you Go since ahead. we're talking about Bobby and the twelve. And, yeah. You know, I like to pick fun at myself, and this is something that happens. No one else does, though. That's a good thing. I don't, you know, it's just cool. Okay, so <laughs> here we are. I mean, let me set the stage for you. I wrote a book with Bobby called Circle of Triumph, and it was published in 1993. Mm-hmm. And um, so one of the very first book signings that we did was at the Kmart right down the street from the Daytona International Speedway. I'm not sure if it's still open now. But it was there. Uh, and so we go. It's a Saturday morning about 10 o'clock. And they know we're coming. And this really, really nice young lady meets us at the door and says, hello, Mr. Allison. Hello, Mr. White. I, we got you all set up in the back here. Got tables, got Sharpies, got your books. And just back in the sporting goods section back here is where we got you set up. Just uh, we'd love for you to come back. And we got your chairs ready. Mighty fine. Every, everything's good. It's okay, nice so. Yeah, real nice setup. They're very nice to us. And this, like I said, this young lady was very nice. And so she said, you know, I'm, gl- I'm glad to see you got a good crowd here. We probably had, I mean, honestly, I don't know, 75 or 100 people. I mean, they were lined up. It was nice. And there was at least and, four or five there just for Bobby. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. So... <laughs> Uh, so we're back here, you know, signing pretty heavy. And she said, I'm going to go up here and make some announcements to let everybody know that, you know, Bobby Allison, Ben White are in the store. So she goes up and makes this announcement to say Ben White, Bobby Allison in the store, come back to the sporting goods and get a book and meet Bobby and Ben. All right. So, but the problem was the microphone would break up about every sixth or seventh word, a little bit of a crackle, but she kept doing it. So. We got, we're back there signing away, 
And these three guys come back here and they look like they could have played for any football team, probably did. And nice, like six foot five and the type of guy you wouldn't want to mess with. Sure. One of them looked at Bobby and said, where's Vanna, Vanna White, where is she? (laughs) (laughs) And Bobby had this typical Bobby Allison fashion. He had this look on his face and he does the, you know, the crooked fingers. Well, let me tell you. That's Old a Ben good... here, it's going to be about the best you're going to get today. And I swear, I have laughed about that. We laughed about that for years, and we still do. Uh, and I'll <laughs> say Vanna White to him. He's, he gets a big grin on his face. But, you know, we had so much fun signing that book and, and becoming such close friends. And, you know, he was my driver when I was growing up, going to Darlington at 11, 12, 13 years old. And then this fate would have it. Uh, we end up writing a book together, but yeah. it was so funny. Even now, 30 years, whatever, years later, we still laugh about this guy. Needless to say, those three guys didn't stick around very long because Vanna White was nowhere around. <laughs> ben, the, the thing, you've buried the lead here, my friend. That Bobby Allison impression, if I said it was spot on, I'd be selling it short. I, I swear, <laughs> I, I thought Bobby stole the microphone from you for a second. Well, We could probably say my, Bobby's a guest and just have you do his voice for five minutes and nobody would notice. Yeah. Well, my wife, Eva, says I do a really good Bobby Allison That's impression. Impressive. And even Bobby says I do a good Bobby Allison impression. So It is. But, that was good, man. That was good. You got to break that out every now and then on here. That yeah. was good. Um, yeah. Well, he says two things. He says mighty fine a lot. And yep. he says, yes, yes. Whatever you, say, whatever you say, he'll say, yes, yes. That's good. So it's just, it was just one of those funny, you had to be there things. But we still laugh about that. You know, there's three guys that are still out there somewhere looking, for, still looking for Vanna White. You know, I, you know, it was just funny. Have you ever met Vanna White, Ben? No, but you know what? I had a chance to. I have. I, I know when it was your chance because I think I think it was the same time that that I actually met Vanna White. Yeah. Um, I wish was... I, I didn't, and I wanted so badly, and I don't remember why I was not able to get to that race, but I really wanted to, and it's like, dang, I'd love to just say hello and tell her that story. I know she would have thought it was pretty funny. So it was the truck race in 2019 at Charlotte, the North Carolina Education Lottery 200. Okay. Uh, great seat still available. CharlotteMotorSpeedway.com, 800-455 fans. Shameless self-plug. Uh, yeah. Okay, so Savannah so White was coming. She was going to be our uh, – she's going to give the command start engines, which is which is totally badass. But um, so Will Tharp, my, uh, my cohort who was doing social media, um, Will alerted me that um, she was doing a TV interview, and he's like, if you want to come meet Vanna White, you can. Um, so I, you know, we go in there and, and it was just, she was super cool, super relaxed, you know, and she's like, hi, I'm Vanna. And I was like, hi, uh, where do I meet Bobby Allison? Um, I'm totally kidding. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, she's super nice, super professional. Um, so Vanna White, I don't think she knew a whole lot about NASCAR. Maybe she did. Um, but she, she played the role very well and she always has. Um, and yet yeah, Ben, to your point, my, probably the cool, the only thing, and you you may have asked Bobby this. I don't know where your allegiances lie and your level of interest in college football, but my knowing that Bobby is, you know, synonymous with the state of Alabama. Um, I'm an Auburn fan, and I was willing to, you know, I wanted to know who he rooted for. So in the Southern 500, 2015, Bobby was in there. I think you were there too. You probably sitting beside him when I asked him this. Um, he had done a press conference uh, talking about the Hall of Fame and, and, and Southern 500 memories because Terry Labonte was there too, I remember, and the King. And um, so I asked Bobby, I had a minute, he was free. So I asked him, I was like, Bobby, I got to ask a question. 
And he probably said, sure, sure, honestly. Um, mm-hmm. I was like, you, you're welcome to say no comment if you like, but I got to know, you being from Alabama, who did you and Judy and, and, and the family, who did you guys pull for when the Iron Bowl, the Auburn-Alabama football game every year, when the Iron Bowl was happening, who did you guys pull for? And he was so diplomatic about it. He was like, I got to be honest with you. We like both of them. We were friends with Suge Jordan, the, the Auburn coach then. We were friends with Barry Bryant. We'd like to see both of them do really good. And I thought it was a great answer. But, Ben, I th- can you shed some light on this? I feel like at some point you've been in Bobby's house and there's got to be some Auburn or Alabama stuff on the wall. So what have you what have you heard? What have you noticed about that? Well, I, I think I can come clean on this, and I'm 99% sure it's Alabama. I figured, man. I figured. Yeah. Cause like and yeah, because he he's kind of into football. I'd call him sometimes, and he, I say, "Hey, what are you doing?" He said, "I'm watching a football game." You know? Yeah. <laughs> and so yeah, I'm pretty sure. I'm 99.9 percent sure. It's it, you'd have to go to Alabama on that. That's a bummer, but I'm not surprised. <laughs> they do have a much more much larger fan base, so I understand they've had more success recently. Uh, which you know and. But he, he handled it very well. He's very diplomatic with me. And, and I don't doubt that, you know, Bobby and Judy probably were friends with Bear Bryant and, and Coach Jordan in Auburn um, because Alabama loves winners in every sport. And you won't mm-hmm. find much of a bigger winner in, in from you know in Alabama than, than Bobby Allison for his whole NASCAR career. So, right. um, But now yeah, I heard and- this, Ben. I heard – and when I say I heard, I actually read it. Um, Davey – liked Auburn because he had like a cousin or a friend or something who played on the football team. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's true or not, but I like truth, to believe it was. Truth, I don't know that. I'm not sure about that. That's, okay. I had not ever heard that before, but uh, I'm I'm 99% sure too that Eddie Allison, who is a brother to Donnie mm-hmm. and Bobby, also had a strong affiliation with Alabama and maybe worked with the team a little bit and uh, had a strong affiliation with him. Let's put it that way, and still does probably. But yeah, Eddie Allison was Bobby's crew chief for a lot of the years in the early '70s when Bobby was running his own cars, and just an incredible guy. If you had, and I think I can go really well with this. If you had someone who would equally match uh, some of those really good crew chiefs from the '70s, yeah. Eddie Allison was one of the best. And, huh. Okay. You know, oh yeah, he was he was extremely good as a crew chief and just just another one of those he's he sort of falls in the middle. Um but Donnie doesn't say a whole lot. Bobby more than Donnie and then Eddie <laughs> Eddie's will tell you whatever you want to hear. Okay. <laughs> there had to be uh, one, man. You gotta think it's like the Elliots. You know it's not gonna be Bill, but one of them's gotta be the talker, right? Yeah, I, I'd say Eddie is and I say that respectfully. Eddie's yeah. a great talker. He's got a lot of great stories and doesn't forget very much. He could tell you everything about everything they've done together on the racetrack and also a lot about football. Yeah, and there's so many NASCAR people who are Alabama fans for various reasons, not the least of which is a lot of them are from Alabama. Um, the most prominent Alabama fan now in NASCAR, uh, Ben, uh, like to know your thoughts. I got to go Larry Mack. Larry McReynolds is an outspoken Alabama fan. Uh, in the times that I have spoken with Larry, I have never broached this subject with him um, because, you know, it can it can get personal, man. I'll tell you, my, my professor in college, um, my advisor, Joe Smith, huge Alabama Crimson Tide fan. 
did not like when I would wear an Auburn hat to class at all. <laughs> and he would, he would point it out in front of everybody. And I mean, it was, it was all good natured, but you know, uh-huh. we joked about the fact that, um, you know, uh, the year I graduated college, Auburn beat Alabama in the iron bowl. Uh, Alabama was ahead 24, nothing, <laughs> blew a 24, nothing lead at home and lost 28, 27 to the Cam Newton and Nick Fairley led Auburn Tigers. And I messaged Joe on Facebook and I was like, uh, Joe, would you, you know, would, would you have failed me? Um, you know, since Auburn's undefeated and all, and he's like, nah, I don't think I'd have failed you cause they were undefeated, but I'd have failed you after the iron bowl for sure. <laughs> um, so, you know, th- yeah. those, the, these, these interests in football run deep with people who have a great passion for NASCAR as well. Larry Max, a major one, uh, my buddy, Jeffrey Earnhardt, Jeffrey and I have, uh, talked a little bit of trash through years about college football more him than me he's often said everybody hates a winner in his defense of pulling for the tide um Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of them you know and um i'd like to know if the guys who've driven the tide car like the tide um you know because of the common connection there i highly doubt daryl waltrip's an alabama fan i think he'd probably like tennessee if i had to guess um, but it, it, I'd be interested to know who these guys root for so then I can judge them personally. Yeah. I mean, yeah, good point. And if I know Daryl, he, I mean, he's, he may be a football fan, but yeah, he's one of those guys that's just absolutely, totally focused on NASCAR, I think. And, and, uh, just, uh, that's a good question you bring up because I'm not sure how many of these guys go outside, the NASCAR box to look at other sports. Yeah. I mean, I'll be quite honest with you since, since April 16th, 1972, my day introduced to NASCAR. I really haven't been that much of a, a fan of other professional sports. Really? Sure. I watched the Super Bowl. Sure. I watched some of the bigger games, football and basketball stuff, but I mean, I'm not just one of these diehard types. that has got to jump the fence and go. I just, now, if you talk about NASCAR, I am, Huh. I mean, I, I don't want to miss any races. And yeah. I mean, I'm, even when I'm not at the track, I'm probably watching it. I'm all the time re- looking at old footage of races. So very much immersed into NASCAR history and, and present day NASCAR. But I'm just one of those types. I'm not into a lot of other sports. So for whatever that's worth. <laughs> I've worked with a lot of people who are, are like that in a sport. So I think the, I think your type is probably more common than mine, honestly. Um, my interests are all over the place, man. It's, you know, certainly NASCAR, Formula One, IndyCar. Um, mm-hmm. I've really gotten into IMSA. My buddy Willie's got me in IMSA. He used to work for IMSA for years. And so we went to the Rolex 24 Daytona f- a few years ago. And I, I like that now and, and have become more well-versed in the subject, sports car racing. Uh, but then, you know, basketball, golf, football, baseball, hockey, uh, like a lot of them. But I'm like you, Ben, you know. It's hard to beat if you're bored, you're on your laptop, firing up YouTube and catching an old race. I think I'd do it more often than I even realize. Like yesterday, yeah. uh, after, after dinner, um, kind of bored, kind of tired, oh, energy to do anything. Let's watch the second half of the 2010 Auto Club 500 from Auto Club Speedway. And so that's mm-hmm. what I ended up doing. Jimmy yeah, Johnson well, today, won the race. So. Yeah, today even I was just messed around the computer and went back to the 1984 Music City 420, and that was the race where uh, Daryl Waltrip and Neil Bonnet were both driving for Junior Johnson, and Daryl goes across the line first, but as it turns out, uh, the caution was thrown the next lap and then ended up 
Neil Bonnet was given the win, but for, for first for 30 seconds, it was Daryl. And then the next 30 seconds, it was Neil. And both of those cars that were painted identically out of the same shop owned by Junior Johnson and neither one of them knew who won the race. Nobody did. And then as it turned out, they gave it to Neil. I'd have to go back and look. I think it went back to Daryl later, but it they was just still a few couldn't weeks decide. later. Do what? They still couldn't decide. It sounds like. Yeah, I mean, it was one of those, had to go back to the rule book, but everybody in the place, including the janitor, thought it went to Daryl. Did you interview the janitor, Ben? (laughs) No, actually, I don't think I went to that one. Well, he might have thought it was Neil, man. We don't know. Maybe so. I I don't know. (laughs) But, I mean, they they went back to the rule book and and read the rule book, and as it turned out, Neil was given the win. Now, I have to go back. I'll be honest. i got to go back and look at my history lessons a little bit because I'm thinking Daryl – Later in the week, they gave it back to Daryl. But it, the the point is, some of these races, I was I got into watching one of the Pocono races from 1984 as well, and I couldn't remember who won. And I want to go back and watch it the rest of the race because I just didn't. I could go look it up, but it's, that's that's not fun. I want to go. Agree. I want to watch it again. Yep. And just see Surprise the competition. Me. Yeah. Yeah. Just see the competition, the cars. I mean, I'm serious, man. And that early 80s era, not to say they're not doing it now, but there was some serious racing going on back in, in 83, 84, 85, where we're on lap seven. And it looked like you're exhausted by lap seven or eight because you've seen so many lead changes and so many, so much action on the racetrack. It's incredible. what the And it, it, I know it's a different era, and I'm not taking a thing away from what we're doing now. Sure. Because there's a lot of great competition in 2021. But I'm just saying those guys, they were really putting the the pedal to the metal on those races. And it was Katie bar the door, especially a place like Pocono, where in past uh, podcasts, we've talked about how tight that first turn is at Pocono. And they go into that thing four wide. And somehow by the time they got to the turn, they were single file, or at least you knew who was going to make it. Sure. But I mean, you know, 300 yards from the turn, they're four wide. So I'm just saying it was some good racing back then. Fun point. You, you notice, um, 84 at Nashville was the most recent cup race at, and the Nashville market until this year when they go race at Nashville super speedway. Interesting. I still think that they're probably going to end up going back to the fairgrounds, um, you know, in the, in the near future. I, I have no basis for that other than just, thinking it's probably going to happen and that we'll get a cup race there. I hope. I think it'd be pretty cool. I've seen an ARCA race there. Um, probably the, the the biggest uh, thing that's ever been in Nashville Fairgrounds cap is that they were a former track of the week on their Lifetime and NASCAR podcast. I'm assuming they've already put up their plaque on the on the grounds there. Um, but yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, I'm that's, sure that's, that's a cool racetrack. And those cars then, Ben, to your point, 84, super awesome. Uh, I was not a fan, still not a fan. I don't know why. I did not like the early '80s Thunderbird. I didn't. I just didn't like how it looked. Now the big boxy Monte Carlo. That was my style. That is probably mm. still my favorite race car in the history of NASCAR in terms of a one body type. Uh, that and really any manufacturer from like the 2003 Winston Cup season. I thought those were awesome. Um, but that that Monte Carlo, that was it. And it was funny. I was thinking about this recently. Um, if you look at that T-Bird, so if you guys like Google, 1984 Talladega, something like that, look up one of the cars. That Ford looks like it's like a nine-tenth replica of the Chevy. No wonder they were so much faster on the on the, the tracks, the super speedways then, man. That, those cars cut through the air so much faster, but that was probably at a time when 
not to say that Arrow was devalued, Ben. I just don't think mm-hmm. we really knew what it was compared no. to what we know now. No, we didn't. And it was it's funny you say that because a lot of those guys who were doing body work on those cars, and of course they had templates back in those days like they do now. Yeah. But they really didn't go to the wind tunnel that much. What you know, if they fit the templates is what they went by. But those guys, they're what we would call the shade tree type mechanics. They would, they could seriously outdo some of those Detroit engineers by just experience on these race cars. And some of it was, you know, checking the toe in with string and these very simple mathematical type uh, functions that they would do on these race cars back in that era, and make them incredibly fast. But you know, some of today's fans may not realize that. Uh, throughout the 80s, we ran cars like the Buick Regal yep. and the Oldsmobile Cutlass. Cutlass. And, you know, it's like, wow, I didn't know they ran an Oldsmobile and a Buick. But, yeah, Buick was big into it, and as was Oldsmobile for many years. And uh, and a lot of times, of course, they would run the Chevrolet Monte Carlo, too. And uh, it's just some, some really, really neat racing. And the cars, if you compared one, if you'd never seen a car from the early 80s compared to today, of course, it looked very different, oh, very this boxy. This makes us look like a spaceship now, honestly. Yeah, for sure. And those cars looked very much like what you could get off the showroom floors in that era uh, in the 70s and 80s, both, 60s also. And they were actual pieces of cars like tops and deck lids and hoods and such that weren't uh, manufactured or fabricated in the shops that were actually pieces that you could order from Detroit where today's cars quite a bit different, but those cars were very, um, very fast on the racetrack, even though they were boxy. Yeah. They had, it was just interesting to see what they could do with very little as when it came to, uh, you know, equipment, they didn't really have engineers. Engineers didn't come into it really until I would say the early two thousands, maybe late, 1990s hmm. but but yeah they the engineers were those guys who ran on the railroads in those days yep, you're right <laughs> they, they didn't have engineers for these cars and experience on uh, it was what made them go fast so shifting gears a little bit in the lifetime and nascar podcast jack ingram sam ard larry pearson tommy ellis rob moroso and chuck bound those guys, if you haven't heard of them, they were the first drivers to win the championship and now what's called the NASCAR Xfinity Series. Now, it's not officially the case, Ben, because the series existed well before 1982. Uh, it was called Sportsman Cars, and then it became a national touring series in 1982. They called it the Budweiser Late Model Sportsman Series, which is a much longer name than NASCAR Xfinity Series. Um, but the, the series, the, the second tier series in NASCAR, it started out really with the exception of, uh, places like Charlotte and Daytona, it was very driven toward short tracks and it could be a place where guys would spend their entire careers, uh, like Jack Ingram and Sam Ard for the most part, or it could be a developmental series. And one of the first guys to come out of the Bush series who was successful was Dale Jarrett. Another was, uh, Brett Bodine who, if I'm not mistaken, Ben, I think he's the last guy to win a race for Buick and Winston Cup. I'll have to check that. But I think you're right. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think it was 90 at, at North Wilkesboro. But, um, so the Bush series had pretty humble beginnings. It, it existed uh, in the sense that it was much more affordable to run a Bush series car. 
a lot of the races were in the Carolinas in the early 80s. They ran at Hickory Motor Speedway uh, three times in 1982. Um, maybe more than that. I'll have to look it up. I and mean, They ran there quite a bit um, early on in, in the schedule. And, it, it you know, the series really grew as NASCAR's national reach grew. Um, but I always thought it was it was really interesting. So, yeah, five times. They were in Hickory five times in the first season. Um, but the health of the, the Budweiser Let Mile Sportsman Series, which, by the way, first driver to win it in that series named Dale Earnhardt, Daytona, 1982, uh, the health of the series was a bit questionable. They had fields as small as 17 cars. Uh, they had an 18-car field, 19-car field at South Boston. So there were some legitimate concerns. You know, is this thing going to last? Is it, you know, what's the viability of this deal? And it didn't take very long, Ben, for people to realize that the Bush Series offered some different things to Winston Cup, and fans really caught on with it. And in, in turn, it became a place where more drivers and teams wanted to race. Yep, that's that's very true, uh, Aaron. And and if you look back at the Bush series and and those beginning years that you're talking about, eighty two, eighty three, it sort of followed the same pattern as what RJR did, RJ Reynolds did for the Cup series. Yep. First, you had to find this, to find the stage that you wanted to be on, and and the the Bush series, sure, they had some some short track, uh, many short track entries. But it sort of gave it a platform or a foundation, if you will, to to bring Bush in that way. And as time went on, they could maybe get more races on the super speedways. And sure, they want to keep their grassroots uh, venues, which were the short tracks. But, I mean, it, it sort of lent some um, some stability maybe, if you will. On those. Yeah, legitimized yeah, it. And, and, but you're right. The first few years of that, they didn't have very strong fields, and there was some question as as to could this go on but you talked about sam ard and and tommy ellis and jack ingram i mean you want to talk about some serious serious racing by those guys they were some badasses man they really were and they and they it was they didn't have the big sponsorships that the cup series guys had they raced for every nickel they could possibly get at Asheville speedway and Hickory and I mean they were so good on those short tracks because they had to be they that was the way they made their living and that the, the money really wasn't there a lot of years it, it got better of course because it got more and more uh, evolved into what what is today's the Xfinity series sure. but if you wanted to see some guys do some serious Saturday night short track racing Katie bar the door those were the guys and they bent so, fenders and they they swung they threw some punches every now and then too yeah yeah you know the old story is uh after a race at some of those races they you know two guys that go nose to nose and one and grab a uh, uh you know a crowbar and the other one pull out a handgun and say what are you gonna do with that crowbar is i'm just looking for a place to put it <laughs> yeah know? it's more of that, that kind of stuff it was I mean, a rough and tumble just, series sure things got things got heated you know because you think back about that kind of racing i mean you had to race you had to you had to win to continue on pretty much and, and you had to race to put food on the table so there were guys yeah, making sure. aggressive moves there were guys on the last lap you might be a tenth and a half behind the leader and you just won't break going and turn three and just clean out the leader because that's an extra 500 bucks that's a tire bill mm-hmm. that's 
That's paying a couple crew guys. That's a big difference maker. And that happened, uh, that especially in the early years of the Bush series. Um, I think we went through a period, Ben, where it was almost like a cup junior. And I think it's gone away from that again, which is fantastic. Um, there are guys in the Xfinity series now, I think you have the potential to move up to the cup series that people don't know a lot about yet. One I'll just throw out is Jade Buford. So the Phoenix mm-hmm. race, I turn it back to the Phoenix race. Jade Buford's running in 10th place in this number 48 car. Um, there are young guys who are not affiliated with the big teams who do have a lot of potential and they're getting an opportunity to show it. So I'm excited to see what they do for the future. But speaking of the past, uh, the people who came up through the Bush series and went on to do some great things. I like thinking of the cars they drove that people don't remember. Uh, like Jeff Gordon and the number one Carolina Ford dealers, Ford Thunderbird that he split with Mark Martin in 1991 or Dale Earnhardt Jr. And the number seven uh, Chevrolet for Ed Whitaker that he qualified on the outside pole in at Bristol in 1997. Uh, there are some really cool, oh, even of the superstars, there are some cool uh, paint schemes or teams that guys drove for that you may not remember, that may not come to mind instantly. Kyle Busch's first Bush Series start, finished second at Charlotte in number 87 Ditech car for uh, for old Joe Nemechek. And, you know, the, the list goes on and on. You can think of all these different cars that guys have driven that are uh, a bit off the beaten path, you might say. But the point has really been uh, the Xfinity Series – what made it so special in its early years was how different it was from Winston Cup. And I think we've gotten back to that point now. And one of the big things, honestly, is, you know, remember, through the 2010 season, you could run Cup and the Bush Series and win both championships if you so desired. And, you know, Kevin Harvick did it in 2001. He did it in 2006. Carl Edwards in 07. Clint Boyer in 08. Kyle Busch in 09. Brad Keselowski in 2010. Finally, Ben NASCAR was like, nope, we're giving, we're making our champion a guy who runs our series and makes it the main thing. And I think that did a lot for the Xfinity series. What do you think? Oh, definitely, because what was happening is the guys that were running the Cup Series could bring some of their, not only their expertise, but their equipment sure. to, the, to the Xfinity series. And then the guys from like eighth on back it's like well i can't compete with that i don't have a forty thousand or fifty thousand dollar motor and i don't have a car that came right out of you know hendrick motorsports or built by their fab guys or whatever and so i think that was a really smart move to do that because the the guys i mean if you think about this if the cars were stacked in a way because they just didn't have the same equipment if if you know if you were going to try to win a race uh, against the guys that have all the the great pit crews and the great engines and the great cars, so yeah, I think that was a smart move on NASCAR's part to to let them have their own arena and let them and then when they progressed in that arena, then they could move up to the Cup Series or whatever. But it it was just one of those one of those situations for sure. I got you, Ben. Somebody calling you right now? Uh, someone did, yes. Okay, all right. I, so we've always been, I, I've always been wondering if I'll be the first one to get a phone call during the podcast. Now I know that I'm, I'm, I'm second it, at worst, so it's all good. Well, um, it was Vanna White, and she said, because she said, just call me later. <laughs> <laughs> I turned my phone off, sorry. Miss White, sorry, this isn't Bobby Allison. You got the no, wrong no, number. It's not. It's, it's the <laughs> other part of that book signing that is really pretty meaningless, there to be you honest. Go. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, and, and 
kind of, you know, just talking about the Bush series, um, one of the drivers who, in my opinion, um, really kind of put it on the map, aside from the already established superstars, Ben, was the late Rob Moroso, guy who's 19, 20 years old. Now, remember, guys, at this time, in late 80s, Bush Series guys, like the young guns in NASCAR, were 35. I mean, you just, like, if you were a 27-year-old driver, well, he's too young to be in Cup. You know, he doesn't belong yet. He hadn't been around long enough. Now, it's the exact opposite. But at this time, it was unheard of for some 19-year-old kid from Connecticut to come in and just dominate. And he won the Bush Series championship in 89 and won Most Popular Driver. Uh, did a phenomenal job. And unfortunately, we lost Rob Moroso. Uh, not even a year after he won the Bush Series championship, he was a rookie in Winston Cup, um, and lost him in, auto, in a very tragic automobile accident in the Lake Norman area, north of Charlotte. But Rob Moroso, his popularity opened up the Bush Series. I think, and it was also at the time Ben when they were starting to get more races on television. You remember a lot of the time in the eighties, if you wanted to go, if you wanted to follow a Bush race, you either caught it on the radio if you were lucky, or you bought a ticket. There weren't a lot of options on television. TV didn't see a lot of value in in televising a lot of Bush Series races. And then people like Rob Moroso, like Jeff Gordon, um, these, these young guys, Ricky Craven, who they could latch on to, um, made it a hotter property for the TV stations. And now, man, you don't you don't miss an Xfinity race. You want to catch a cup race, you can. You want to catch an Xfinity race, you can. And we often do. Um, right. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And it, it's it, it, I think it's great. I mean, you know, it, it's uh, to me. I, so I got to know something, Ben. I'll say mine first. First Xfinity Series race I ever saw. I was with the Cub Scouts. It was 1994. It was the All Pro Auto Parts 300 at Charlotte, the fall Xfinity Series race. Uh, I think Terry Labonte won it. Or Cock correctly, he's probably driving a number 14 Chevy. But anyway, I went with the Cub Scouts. And one of the reasons I joined the Cub Scouts, Ben, you know, the selling points for me were you got a Pinewood Derby race, a space race, a space derby, and you got tickets to the Bush race at Charlotte in the fall. I mean, that, that was the that was it for me. I mean, yeah, we can learn how to tie knots and do all this other stuff, but like if you're going to take me to a race for free, yeah, I'm down for that. So that was that was a big selling point for me. But that was the first uh, Xfinity slash Bush Series race I saw in person was 94. Do you remember the first one you saw? Well, uh, I really honestly have to, to think about that as far as the Xfinity. I could tell you immediately the, the Cup one, which was Darlington in 1972. Yeah. And again, that was very much like your situation. Uh, it was it was a scout Boy Scout outing that we went on, and it, the ticket there was no fee to go, and it was no didn't have to buy a ticket, just go. And back then they just couldn't fill the backstretch, so yeah. it was nice of them to let scout troops come and and be on the backstretch, and that's how it, this whole thing started for me. And had had my dad not said, hey, let's go to Darlington uh, with some friends, I don't know what I'd be doing. I might be doing something totally different, but. That's how I was introduced. I, I was I, as I was sitting here thinking. I'm thinking the first one I saw. Um, gosh, it might have been '83, '84 at Charlotte because I was there to cover the Cup race, and I'm sure I, that's probably where I saw my first one. To be honest, it, I, I'm not 100% sure, but I think so. As far as Xfinity, I think one of the cool things about the Charlotte races. I don't know that these were really replicated anywhere else, and I don't know how they'd work now. But if you recall, Ben, at that time. And honestly, well into the 90s, 
they had so many people who wanted to qualify for the bush races at Charlotte because they, they paid quite a bit more than a lot of the other bush races on the schedule. Um, they just they had qualifying races for a bush race. So if you didn't make the field, you did, you weren't fast enough in your qualifying race to make the cut. And there were some big names sometimes who, who didn't qualify. Um, and they did that in the early eighties. Another thing they did that you might remember, Ben was, I don't, okay. I don't know what people think of this now, but they had a halftime. They did a hundred, you know, 200 laps, lap 100 caution flag. They're like a 15 minute halftime break. I don't, mm. do you think that'd work now? I don't know that it would. Uh, I don't, I don't think so. I would. I don't know that I'd be a real big fan of that because, I mean, I would be so keyed up to you know, as to what's going on, and I'm on the edge of my seat, and I'll say, "Okay, it's time for a halftime show." It's like, what? Wait, stop! You know? I'm, yeah, I got a about, short attention span. That'd be my problem. <laughs> well, I just, you know, I just don't think it would it would fly. But you know, talking about, I I know this to be true in the Cup Series and the. Well, say mid '90s, early '90s, even might have been laying, you know, up more than that. Mm-hmm. You would go to some races, and you might have 20 or 22, 24 extra cars trying to get in the field, trying to qualify for a cup race. Can you imagine that? I think there was a race, the first, a, the first Brickyard 400 in 1994. It seems like they had something like. 80 cars. Yeah, 70 or 80 cars for sure. Something like that trying to get in the field. And that's a lot of race teams. That's a double the field, man. That's two it races. Is. And Yeah, and there, it's not nearly that way, of course, now with the, the way it's done in 2020 or 2021. But, I mean, there was a time that you might have as many cars in the field, uh, you know, trying to make the field. I mean, 40 extra cars trying yeah. to get in the 40 spots. And it's just amazing you know, some of the bigger races, Daytona had for the 500, there'd be years. They had 15, 20 extra cars trying to make the field. So yeah, it's just amazing. It is. And, and, you know, that brings up a good point. There are some, some interesting stories of big name drivers, whether it be in the cup series or in the Xfinity series, who, if you look at their career stats, they DNQ'd once or twice in their careers. Um, Kyle Busch DNQ'd in uh, for one or two cup races in 2004, Dale Earnhardt Jr. in 97 failed to qualify at Charlotte for the fall race in Xfinity and at Hickory. Uh, so there, But there's been a bunch of guys. I mean, even recently, this is a strange one. Ricky Stenhouse Jr., Roush, 17 car, super fast, failed to qualify in 2014 fall race at Talladega in the Cup Series. And mm-hmm. then two and a half years later, he wins his first race at Talladega. So it's still difficult to make the cut, but... It is not as tough as it was then when you get guys like Harry Gant, um, you know, Terry Labonte not making the field in the Bush race. And then they'd qualify top five in the cup race, which really spoke to just how evenly matched the series was and how it wasn't easy for guys to take that step down and thrive against people who were doing it, you know, week after week, even if they had a little bit of a bigger budget. And to that point, Ben, I got to throw some an interesting bit of trivia that I learned years after the fact. Okay. You know who the, so the first Bush race I ever saw, remember 1994 fall race at Charlotte. Uh, there were 45 cars in that race, not 43. I think there was 45. Hmm. Do you know who finished 45th and dead last in that race? Vanna white. I don't know. <laughs> That's a good guess. That's a good guess. Uh, I don't know. Dale Earnhardt. Really? Dale Earnhardt blew an engine very early in that race. That was also the last Xfinity Series start of Dale Earnhardt's career. 
Really? Yep. Very interesting. So the first race he ran when it became the Xfinity Series officially, he finished first. And the last race he ran, he finished last. That's bookended, right? That is pretty cool. Well, you know, i tell you what, and uh, and it's still this way, but when you can win a race at Charlotte Motor Speedway, I mean, you've really accomplished something. And I remember back in, well, the 80s and 90s, uh, well, 70s too, but especially the 80s when I was when I just had started covering the sport. Yeah. If you went home with one of those really, really cool Bruton Smith trophies from Charlotte, I mean, you were like the talk of the town, at least for the next couple of weeks. You sure. know, to, yeah. to say Kyle, like for instance, Kyle Petty wins the 600 or, and there was a time and it still happens, but there was a time when you'd have these guys that come out of nowhere that hadn't won anywhere else to that point, but they can somehow win the 600. And, you know, I know Matt Kenseth got his first win in the 600. Jeff Gordon got his first in the 600. It's just something Casey Mears. It's mm-hmm. just a magical track. And it always has been. I just remember the hype in the 80s to to be able to come across the start-finish line first, win at Charlotte. You're like, okay, your career has just moved to a brand-new level when you could win at Charlotte. I just remember that feel. And it's, it's funny that you bring up Kyle Petty. It's a great example because three or four years ago, I was interviewing Kyle, and he told a story I'd never heard before. So... Kyle won his second career cup win was the Coca-Cola 600 1987. Uh, so Kyle was giving us a little bit of a background on this. So he he just drove his regular truck to the racetrack. The guys loved it because he could stay in level cross where he's from and just commute to the racetrack for race days, sleep in his own bed at home. Mm-hmm. So Kyle does that. He's starting like ninth or something. Um, he overslept. Now imagine the nightmare that you have of waking up and you're like, oh my gosh, I've overslept. I might not make the start of the race. Now I might even get any points, let alone the the supreme embarrassment if he gets stuck in traffic. But so he is booking it to get to the racetrack from Level Cross, which is it's, it's a little bit of a hike. What it would you is, say, Ben? Yeah. Hour and a half, maybe hour, oh, hour yeah. and a half. Yeah. Okay, so Kyle's hoofing it down down the down the highway to get to the racetrack in time. And he makes it, gets in his car. Nobody else knows a thing. He ha- they have no idea of the stress that Kyle had driving, you know, speeding probably an incredible amount to get there. He said swerving in and out of traffic, making sure he'd get to the racetrack on time. And, you know, all the time thinking, like, what what am I going to tell my team? What are, what are they going to say to me? What am I going to do mm-hmm. if I don't make it on time? And not only does he make it on time, he wins. He wins the Coca-Cola 600. And you know what, Ben? He had this great day. So Kyle finished his story. He's like, I had this awesome day, man. Biggest race of my life. I won the race. You know, I barely got there on time. I'm driving home. His Bruton Smith trophy, to your point, Ben, was riding shotgun with him in his truck. I'm so keyed up. Man, I won the 600. It's so cool. This is so awesome. He's about halfway home, and he ran out of gas on the highway. <laughs> uh, he forgot to get gas in the morning because <laughs> oh he was gosh. in such a hurry. And so somebody somewhere gave the Coca-Cola 600 winner a lift the day he won the Coca-Cola 600. So How cool is it's that? a gas mileage race, whether you're on the track or off the track, I guess. Oh, that is, that's a great story. And, you know, I'm certain that Kyle uh, was very just talkative all, to this guy like he had known him all his <laughs> life. And, hey, man, thanks. Th- I can hear him now. Hey, man, thanks. Thanks for taking me home. But yep. you know what? Something While you were talking, something else came to mind about oversleeping. And I can't remember... I'm sorry, but I can't remember what year. I'm thinking 
98 or 99, but mm-hmm. Jeff Gordon uh, overslept one Saturday morning at Char- when it was a race at Charlotte Motor Speedway, and I want to say it was the 600, and uh, everything in the world was going wrong that morning. They couldn't find Jeff, and he, he just overslept. And so his car is sitting there. There's cars on the racetrack. They're practicing. Ray Evernham is, you know, wondering, where is my driver? I vaguely and, recall this. Yeah, and as it turned out, Terry Labonte got in the 24 car, and as it turned out, got in the wall with it a little bit. Talk about a day that nothing was going right, even, and I was standing there, and I felt so bad for Ray, but he was had his clipboard and his headphones on, and he was trying to get back to into the garage or there from the transporter, and they'd put up these little you know, little things, little streamers or whatever to keep, I guess, keep fans from going too close in on the trucks. Uh-huh. And dang it, if he didn't, if he didn't trip on that and fell flat on his face. And it's like, golly, you talk about a horrible morning where nothing is going right. And I felt so bad for Ray. He just got his call. He was trying to, trying to step over it. And no disrespect to Ray, but we've all done something like that before where his foot just caught that that thing, that streamer, yeah. and just put him right on the ground. It's like, okay, my driver's not here. I, I got another Hendrick driver to drive my car. He scrapes it up. I can't find my driver. Oh, my gosh. You talk about a rotten, rotten morning. I don't remember where all they all finished, and I don't remember the exact year. I want to say 98, 99, mm-hmm. but Ray was his crew chief, and boy, we've all had things that did not go right, and I'm not trying to knock Jeff or Ray or the team, but I've had my share of embarrassing times but man don't you just know i don't know what jeff said but here i am (laughs) yeah and that's got to be a really frustrating thing to like show up and your team's like you know because you know like they're going to be nice about it but you know that like as soon as you walk away they're all kind of looking at each other like really are you kidding me there's an unspoken thing we bust our tail and this guy doesn't even show up on time on a big race weekend, but yeah. you know what? He probably won, honestly, because they, uh, yeah, they owned did. the track I, then. So I wish I could remember they when probably it was. did. Well, I'm going to look it up now. Cause like yeah. I, you've got, you, you've piqued my interest. Yeah. yeah I mean, I that was just like one of those cases where, you know, I'm sure Jeff, I'm sure Ray, I'm sure a lot of the guys were like, can we all just go to bed and start over this day? This, yeah. this, 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 oh, just, yeah. We've, and this and to that point, we've all had days sure. where we just wish we'd never gotten up. And yeah. if we could just go back to bed and, you know, I've I've had my share of, you know, like you talk about Kyle running out of gas and, oh, yeah, just things that are saying, sticking my foot in my mouth or we've all had bad days. And I just felt so bad for that crew, especially when they had to bring the car back in, then there's Terry Labonte who feels bad, who who just wrecked the 24 car, scraped it a little bit, and had to work on the right front fender. And it's like, what else? And you don't want to say what else because everything was just going wrong. But yeah, he probably either top five or top ten. Yeah, you know, Jeff was least. always good at Charlotte. Yeah, and and honestly, that's probably the last bad day Hendrick Motorsports has had at Charlotte. Um, yeah. When you look at all the success they've had since then, um, it, it's it's been. It's been an insane run for for that entire team, and they're probably going to keep it up as far as the Roval with Chase Elliott and maybe the 600 with one of their guys as well. Um, Ben, I think we've crossed the finish line. Like Jeff Gordon, he was so thankful to cross the finish line on that day at Charlotte. Well, like we've crossed the finish line on episode 12. Been a blast, as always, chatting up with you. Uh, We're going to be back with episode 13, Faster Than Tim Richmond, going through the S's at Riverside. We're going to have to chat up some more about Riverside coming up uh, 
a lot of stories about that racetrack. I never had a chance to visit it, but we're going to talk about some some special moments that some of the the biggest contenders had there and some of the things they've told myself and Ben as well of their memories from it. But in the meantime, throw a rating our way wherever you're listening. We'd love to have your feedback um, on what we're talking about, what you think we should talk about, what toppings you think Ben should put on his hot dog, all kinds of things. Um, but we'll be back very soon with episode 13 of A Lifetime in NASCAR. Greatly appreciate you guys listening. For Ben White, I'm Aaron Burns. Thanks again, and so long, everybody. Eric Estep here. This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries. Get it done with green. Forney offers a full line of welding and plasma cutting machines, metalworking accessories, and more. For do-it-yourselfers all the way to professional metalworkers, Forney has everything you need for your next project. Shop Forney's top-of-the-line products at forneyind.com. That's Forney, F-O-R-N-E-Y, ind, I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you.